Well, good morning, Crossroads. And I'm sure that in your family, you've got kind of like fun things you do, and it's kind of like every time you're together, this ends up happening. Well, we have that in our family too. And one of those things is when somebody does something really cool, everybody goes, honor, 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 honor. <laughs> and when somebody does something really lame, everybody goes, shame, shame, shame. <laughs> You, all, you look too, far too complacent. Come on, let's do the exercise, right? So when somebody does something really cool, we go like, no, 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 no. Said, Everybody does this, okay? Now, no hall passes in here this morning, all right? When somebody does something really cool, we go like, and when somebody does something really lame, we look at them and we go like, shame, shame, shame. All right, so this is an honor-shame text this morning in our study of the book of John, when we come to John chapter 12. And um, in this text, we have the contrast of two insiders. Uh, one is Mary, who deeply and passionately loves Jesus, and she's an insider. And the other one is one of the 12 disciples, as we read, Judas Iscariot. He, too, is an insider. But he has a totally different view of how he functions with Christ. Mary, her particular view, is that she looks for ways to extravagantly and passionately honor Jesus Christ in her life, which leads us all to go like... Exactly. And then Judas, however, he has a totally different perspective. He doesn't live to honor Christ... He lives, and his whole context as an insider is what he can get from Jesus as a part of being an insider. And we obviously, if we know the whole story, we're going like, good for you. So let's step into the moment. Maybe I should ask you, when you think of yourself in this text, which one do you think you're like? I guarantee you, nobody in the room this morning says, well, I'm like Judas. But if you just said that, maybe you ought to think again. So let's get into the moment. The moment is this, is that Jesus Christ is on his way from Capernaum, where, where his headquarters is, is to Jerusalem. It's a very dangerous trip for him because this is going to the Passover. If you read the context around this, it's very clear that the Jews now have him as the number one wanted guy seeking to kill him. He's number one on the FBI list, wanted. You know, all the Jerusalem post offices, <laughs> this is Jesus, wanted. So he's walking right into danger. And by the way, the disciples understand the danger of his death. As uh, Rod said last week, even Thomas says, all right, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. So the death of Christ is evident and very much plays a critical aspect of this moment. So on the way to Jerusalem, they come to the town of Bethany, and that's like one of the suburbs. And as you see, he comes in, and Mary and Martha throw him a feast. Now, I think that it's parenthetically for us, as we look through the rearview mirror, something really significant here. He's going for the Passover. The Passover was that celebration of the Jews' departure from Egypt. And the key was, if you were to be free and escape the judgment, you slayed your best lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. 
What an interesting timing that Jesus would go to Jerusalem and shed his blood at the Passover, the holy lamb of God, so that you and I could be free. That's the ultimate track that this, this journey is going on for Jesus. And so uh, Mary and Martha throw this dinner for him. And in the room is Lazarus, her brother who just accept, uh, was raised from the dead. And probably Simon the leper was her dad, whom Jesus no doubt had healed. And in this moment, Mary moves to Jesus with her most precious thing and breaks it and anoints Christ. It's one of the, I think, in the Gospels, one of the most dramatic, beautiful pictures of love for Jesus. And the fragrance fills the whole room. Um, and then there's Judas. So let's think about the Mary part of it first. Mary uh, goes and gets her most valuable perfume. And as the text reminded us when we read it, it's nard, which is the most precious of perfumes in that day and the most expensive. Like if you go to buy perfume on eBay, you're always looking at the price, right? Like, I don't know if I want to spend quite that much. Well, this literally was equal to a year's wages. It had to be the very best thing that she had. And she runs to Jesus and breaks it at his feet. So the first thing we know about her love for him is that it's an extravagant love. Secondly, it's a humble love. Because normally the anointing of a worthy person in biblical times is, uh, is the anointing of a king, the anointing of a priest, the anointing of somebody who is famous. And they would usually take precious oils and break it over their head and it would run down their hair and onto their garments. Like the psalmist says that like, living together in unity is like the fragrance that comes from the anointing of Aaron. And what would happen is this would go down onto their clothes and for the next week, everywhere they would go, they would sense, people would know that they had been anointed and they would take that fra fragrance with them. Uh, but what's very interesting here is that she doesn't stand at his head doesn't anoint his head, she falls at his feet. Kind of like, I am not worthy of this. This is like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's what servants do. It's what the lowest of the low do. And so not only is it an extravagant lift of, gift of love, it's an extremely humble gift of love. And she loosens her hair and wipes his feet with her own hair. So this is an extravagant, humble, personal, intensely personal touch of Jesus in her love for him. She's not going like to the servants, hey, I got nard in the, you know, the top drawer of my dresser. You know, get it and bring it here and just pour it at Jesus' feet and take care of this for me. Oh, this is like so personal that she brings herself. And if you want to know what this was like, I just review. This is a love that is extravagant, humble, and personal. That's how she loved Jesus Christ. Contrast. So Judas is in the room as well. And he's over here mumbling with his other disciples, and he's saying, you know what? It's kind of a real waste here. We could sell this and give money to the poor. I always say, I'm always suspicious of people who sound too spiritual. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like... Really? 
But you may say, well, may, maybe that's a good idea. Uh, but Jesus immediately picks up on those thoughts as he hears him and reproves Judas. And he says, do not reprove her. And he defends this kind of love against the criticism. He says, she, he, she has saved this for my burial. So think about Mary who thinks how much I love him. When he dies, I'm going to be a part of the procedure of him. I'm going to give my very best to him. But now he's headed to Jerusalem in the turmoil of the crowds and the hostility of the officials. And they're going to, she's probably going like, I have no clue I'll ever get any place near him. I don't know when or what. So this is the moment. And he says, she has saved this for my burial. And she's anointing this as an act of love for me. And then he says to Judas, the poor you will always have with you. You will not always have me with you. Now, we have to know that he's not dissing the poor. He's not going like, you know what? There will always be poor people, so let's not worry about that. I really think what he is saying is, you'll always be able to help the poor because they're always going to be with you. But now this is the time. I will not be with you. This is the time for my anointing. So in a sense, it's not only extravagant and humble and personal, but it's a timely act of love as well. Then John has a comment, an editorial comment. If you read through the book of John, he's often doing this like aside. And he said, this Judas said, not because he loved the poor, but because he was the treasurer of the disciples, and as treasurer, he used to steal from the money bag for his own personal profit, that he was really in this game for, him, game for himself. And think of his dream. Like when Christ, they all thought that Christ was going to come and bring the kingdom, and he's going to be the treasurer of the kingdom. Talk about clear path to wealth. This was huge for him because soon he'd have all the treasury of the kingdom, and he'll be able to make himself rich on that. So Jesus Christ uncovers and John uncovers the reality of why Judas is in this. He's in it for what he can gain from Jesus. By contrast to Mary, who's in it for what she can give to Jesus. Which brings me back to that comment at the beginning. I said, if you think you're not like Judas... Maybe you ought to think again. Now, I know no, nobody in here is dipping from the treasury, you know, the blue buckets in the back of where we put our... I haven't seen anybody walk out and just take a bunch out of there. So it's not that extreme, right? But there is a sense that many of us view our walk with Christ and our Christianity for the most part about what it does for us. Think about that. Like, um, you know, I'm really glad I'm a Christian because I can pray and he answers my prayers. Or, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I get forgiveness, you know. When I sin, he wipes it clean. I'm really glad I'm a Christian. He, his word lights my path. It's a, so walking through the dark world that I'm in, I, I know where to go and what, I'm really glad I'm a Christian. He's the truth, so I have a lot of stability because I just plant myself in the truth. And he's the way and he's my life. And I'm really glad I'm a Christian because I'm in a little small group and I love my small group. They're so wonderful. And 
I'm really glad I'm a Christian. I go to church. I feel safe at church. Finally, I'm out of the, the tumult, and I'm safe at church. I, and I'm a, I love the worship, and on and on and on. Would you admit to me that for the most part, when you think about your relationship to Christ, the predominant reality is all that it does for you? I think so. So in that sense, we're not, uh, we're not much different than Judas. And the interesting thing, it's a very dangerous place to be. Because if that's your driving motivation of being a part of this thing, what's going to happen when it doesn't work? Uh, we've had two of our grandsons play football at Forest Hills Eastern, so we'd go to the football games. And we was like, these coaches are so lame. <laughs> exactly. Because they would call the wrong plays. It was like yesterday with Michigan, like, exactly. These coaches are calling all the wrong plays. And so consistently, every time they were, like, up against the line of scrimmage and they had, like, five yards to go, in this one game, they're... They're running it up the middle. They get nowhere. Next play. I'm thinking, let's be creative here. Up the middle again. They get nowhere. Up the middle again. They get nowhere. And finally, some mom behind us just screams out, it's not working. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens when your prayers don't get answered? What happens that you don't feel forgiven? That this sin that haunts you, that you keep trying to get over, that, that you just think God will give you the strength to get victory, and, and it just, you fall again, and you fall again. What happens when you don't like the people in your small group anymore, or you don't like the worship, or you don't like whatever? What happens if the word of God seems dry to you, and it doesn't seem like relevant truth? Or what happens when his ways are weird, like... Like saying these annoying things like, if you want to live, you have to die. If you want to gain, you have to give. Like, like what happens when you sense it's not working? When Judas sensed it wasn't working, you know the rest of the story. Because once he knew Christ was going to the cross and he was in it for his own gain, he realized that it was over. And he went to the chief priests and sold Jesus for 30 pieces. At least I can get out of this 30 pieces of silver. And he did that because the gig was up and it wasn't working. Now, I don't think any of us are going to, you know, wear T-shirts that say, Jesus for sale. I'm not sure that any of us, but what happens is that when we get to that place, a Christianity based on what it's doing for me and it's not working anymore, what happens is that we just want to bail And maybe not literally bail, you're still coming to church. But we bail on the inside. And we just go dark and we go quiet and it just chills over. I think about John chapter 21 when Peter bails. It just wasn't working for him either. Uh, The text tells us that he says to his disciples, you know, 
to his disciple friends, let's go fishing. Now, I have to tell you, the context is, is after the resurrection of Christ, and um, Jesus has only appeared twice. I would think once he was resurrected, they'd think, hey, we're going to be with him 24-7 again, and he'll tell us all the mysteries of the kingdom and why the death, why the resurrection, but he never shows up. How discouraging can that be? And uh, so he says to the other guys, he says, hey, let's go fishing. So what do you think that means? Well, maybe he's going to take a day off. <laughs> I don't think that's the case because I don't think Jesus would have trouble with the day off. Um, even he himself, the Gospels tell us that he would go apart with more messages to preach, more people to heal. He'd go apart and rest a while. When your tank's on weary, you need to take a break. You got to sing the old hymn. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. No, remember that hymn, number four in the old hymnal book. Got to know when to walk away. No one, you just, so he, he wouldn't have a problem with that. But I'll tell you what Peter's doing. Peter is reopening the fishing business. He's basically saying, it's not working. I didn't think it would turn out like this. He himself is so discouraged, and he's a failure. Just, just what, hours before he's denied crime on such a failure. It's not working. And not only that, but Judas has absconded with the treasury. They're flat broke, so why not open a fishing business? And he's going off mission. He's going off calling, which threatens the whole global enterprise of the gospel because it's these guys who are going to take the gospel to the whole world. And if this fails, maybe you and I don't sit here today from a practical sense fully redeemed because they bail. And he bailed because... It wasn't working. And that's the problem with the Christianity that basically sees itself of what Jesus can do for me. It's the Judas niche of our lives. So how, how do you move to Mary? Like, isn't, is there anybody here this morning? I just want to be with Mary. I want, I want to be in that lane with Mary how do you move there? Well, I think it's interesting to note that probably it begins with a deep sense of gratitude. Thanksgiving is coming, so maybe not a bad thing for us to talk about like gratitude, a deep sense of gratitude. Here she is at this dinner, and she looks at her dad, probably as I said, Simon the leper, who Jesus has healed from one of the most worst diseases. And then she looks over here at Lazarus, who Jesus has actually raised him from the dead. And this sense of gratitude just swells in her heart. And she's going like, how can I tell him how much I love him for what he's done for us? And she goes for her best and breaks it at his feet. And it seems to me like, like gratitude is the trigger, too, for us. And all the things he has done for us. And maybe, there may be someone here who's saying, like, he hasn't done anything for me lately. I remember when Marty and I were ministering in Detroit. I was a pastor at a church. That was, remember the Tigers in the 80s? Now, that was a baseball team. I realize some of you weren't born yet, but take my word for it. That was like, they won the series in 84. And one of the guys in my church was a pitcher by the name of Frank Tanana. And he pitched this amazing game that got them into the division playoffs. And the headlines, oh, Tanana's amazing. 
And so the first game of the division playoff, he pitches again. It didn't go so well. And all the editorials are like against Frank. So I asked him one time, I said, well, what's with you? He said, I learned a long time ago that everything about baseball fans is what you've done for me lately, that that runs the course. And I think sometimes for us, when we look to be grateful, we say, you know, well, what has he done for me lately? So I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, what has he done for me lately? And I started to think through, and it was a little slow at the beginning, and then I got my top 10 things that I am grateful for that stimulate a love for Christ in my life. Anybody interested? Yeah. All right, that's five of us. Here we go. The rest of you can ask. But the first thing was that he has chosen me. And I don't want to get into a food fight about predestination. God's going to work that out when we get there. But it's interesting that all through the, the New Testament, the reference is not that we were born into, the king, into Christ, although John chapter 3 does say we were born again, and then that's it on the born stuff. All the rest is that we were adopted, which means we were chosen. I mean, Marty and I have had three kids. We're stuck with these kids. You're like, ah. Oh. Great kids, I will say, ultimately. Uh, but Jesus isn't stuck with you. He chose you. He adopted you. When our little daughter, Libby, your pastor's wife, I'd often go sit on the edge of the bed and pray with her, and then I'd say, hey, Libby, you know, if we could line all the four-year-olds up across the sky, I would just look, no, 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 no. And when I came to you, I'd choose you as my daughter. And she had this big smile on her face. Through no merit of my own, I've been chosen by God, rescued from the domain of darkness, put into the kingdom of his dear son. The second thing on my list was what he has kept away from me. Where I say, what have you done for me? Maybe you have things of what he has kept away from you. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that he doesn't let anything into your life except those things that you can overcome and those things that he will help you make a way of escape, which means that he stands at the sovereign sentinel of my life. And when Satan pulls stuff in that's going to take me down, he doesn't let them in. That's exactly what he did with Job and Satan. He said, Satan, you can do this, but you can't do that. I wonder if it ever crossed your fallen little brain that at night when you put your head on the pillow, God didn't do anything for me today, that you can just thank him, the fact for he kept everything out today, that you have no clue what it's about. That he protects me. That his presence is with me, that he will never leave me or forsake me. I, I will not fear what man does to me. That his mercies are new to me every morning. Do you love the mercy of God? We're all so broken, aren't we? We're all so quick to fail. Can you imagine if he wasn't a God of mercy, but he was only a God of might? Oh, you know, what jeopardy we'd be in. But no, he is a God of mercy, and the psalmist says, his mercy, every morning when I get up, his mercy is new to me afresh. Wow. And his steadfast love. Read through the Old Testament. God keeps saying, I'm a God of steadfast love. That means that he is always Loving regardless. Nothing changes it. Is there anybody in the house this morning that's really thankful that God loves you regardless all the time? 
Thank you. That was a great place for an amen. And he doesn't love you necessarily because you're so cool. He can't help himself. God is love. And when you're getting a look at me, I'm so what I did, he still loves you because he is love. And he does love you personally, too, and wants to redeem you and bring you back. I said, it's so good. I mean, that's the only thing on my list. It's enough. That he's hope in a world gone wrong. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of Christians who are deep in despair with all the stuff that's happening in our world. I just, I came all the way from Cornerstone to tell you this. Despair is not in our vocabulary. Do you know why? Because we know the end of it all. We've read the last chapter. Jesus wins. And if you freeze frame it here, you'll be in despair. Never freeze frame it. I mean, our, our lives are, are like a feature-length film. And God is the executive producer. This God who works all things together for good. And I can have hope in a world gone wrong, a culture gone wrong, a life gone wrong. I just have hope. He gives me that. That he gives guidance through his word, a light to my path. That he gives me his wisdom. John, James chapter 1 says, because how many of you know that life can be pretty confusing? And you just go like, I don't have a clue. James chapter 1 says, if you ask him for wisdom, and Colossians says that, that, that Christ is the treasure of wisdom, that I will give it to you generously, no matter how many times you ask, and I'll not make you ashamed. He's not going, you're back again asking for wisdom? you got to be kidding. He's not going to make you ashamed. It's available for you. There was a time when Marty and I decided we liked jigsaw puzzles. We were basically seduced by the box tops. And this one had like this, this mountain of Oreo cookies. And with a big glass of milk sunk right in the middle of the mountain of the Oreo cookies. We had to buy it. Like, we were buying this. Another one was like a triple-decker hamburger with all the juice and the cheese and everything. We're buying it. We get it home, take the cellophane off the, and open it up. And we throw the pieces on the, on the table. Despair, like, wow. It's like life, isn't it? All of a sudden, it's just pieces on the table. You don't have a clue. Guess what? God has all the box tops. He has all the wisdom. He knows how it all gets together. And he offers you the opportunity to dig in the word and get the wisdom whereby, wow, how thankful can we be for that? And his word. And then number 10, Heaven guaranteed, hell canceled. If you don't have anything else but that, you have enough to be thankful for the rest of your life, no matter what happens. And suddenly, when you just stop, and you know how much he's done for us, how can you help but not be grateful? How can you help but not with Mary? Like, how, how can I love him? How can I live acts of anointing that come to him? And if you say that, okay, like that suddenly stimulates my love, and I look for ways to honor him in my life, uh, and so now, now you're elevated, by the way. Now you're triggered up to the highest form of Christianity, not what it does for me, although we're thankful for all the things it does for us, 
but rather because of that, I am going to live to honor him, seek ways that I can live out love for him and honor him and tell him how much I love him in my life. That is the pinnacle and the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what would that look like? First of all, it would look like an adventure where you and I were looking for ways to extravagantly love him. Since Mary's model is extravagant, humble, personal, timely love, I'd look for ways to be extravagant in my love for him. Um, One of my favorite passages in the Gospels, in the stories of Christ, is in Luke chapter 12, where by this time, Jesus is like the headline rabbi, like everybody wants time with Jesus. Like if you were in a crowd and you got close, hey, dude, sign my Torah. You know, it would be like, this is like huge. (laughs) And uh, so Jesus is walking through the crowd, and a guy in the crowd makes eye contact with him. And the guy, what a privilege. I get to talk to the main rabbi guy. And he says to him, Master, tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> I'm going like, if you get one shot at Jesus, that's maybe not the best thing to say. <laughs> like I could give you some script that would... But Jesus uses it as... An, as an opportunity to teach the rest of the crowd. And listen to what he says. He says, Take heed and beware of greed, living for more, living for gain. Take heed and beware of greed, for a person's life consists not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. How countercultural is that? How counterintuitive is that? That my life does not consist of what I possess. There's something deeper, richer about life. And then he tells the story of the rich fool who had such a great harvest that he tore down his barns. And I mean, his barns are already full. I think he has enough. Why doesn't he think I've got a better harvest? What could I do to help the poor or give it away or do something good to someone? No, he just builds bigger barns. And then he says... Thou fool, tonight your soul's required of you. Then who shall these things be? And I'm sure the disciples were delighted that he was kind of like going after the pagans, right? Like, yeah, we love it when you do your turn or burn sermon. You know, they'd keep that up, keep going. And then he, but he turns to them and he says, why are you so distracted by material earthside stuff? Why are you so worried where you're going to get enough money to buy another robe or your sandals? Why are you so worried about where you're going to get money to buy food from? He says the, the, the lilies, are. He, God dresses them better than Solomon was ever dressed. And he feeds the low-level cast of birds. He feeds the ravens. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So we're extricating ourselves from a life of gain into the love of the kingdom. And then he says, if you want to think about extravagancy, sell what you have and give to the poor. Now that obviously needs to be nuanced. But there's an emphasis there that I'm willing to be extravagant. I am willing to go overboard. 
I am willing to do more for Christ so that you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, this amazing extravagance. And, you know, maybe it's extravagance in what I give to PRC, you know, with the Jim's good work, who happens to be a graduate of Cornerstone University. I had to kind of sleep that in there. Or to Life International and giving more. I'm sure it applies to that. This is a way that I can love Jesus. But how about extravagant in other ways? How about extravagant in your attitude of love toward others? Is there anybody here this morning that's really tired of grumpy Christians? Well, I am. You know, I'm against this, and why do they do that, and what's up with this, and what? Like, get a biblical life. Seriously. Did you ever get, do you have a generous attitude? I love Jesus. I mean, he had such a wide-open, generous attitude because he was into redemption, not into cancel. And the tax collector, the prostitute, like, I'm just into redemption, you know. How can we be a part of the solution at the generosity of attitude? Generosity with your time. You know, there's the need at church. Well, I could, I don't want to do, yeah, I will do that. Generosity with your talents. Well, the list could go long, but finding a way to love Jesus because you're so thankful for what he's done for you is, is it's extreme. You look for the extravagant, and you look for the humble. John 15 says that I will know that you love me when you obey me. And obedience demands humility. If I'm proud, I want to stay in control. I want to do it my way. And then God intersects my life, and he calls me to obey. And I have to bow at his feet and wash his feet with my obedience Obedience on what kind of husband to be. Obedience in how to use my money. Obedience in terms of other people. Obedience, and sometimes it's hard obedience. In fact, the harder it is, the more fragrance the aroma comes out when you obey. But it may be the hard obedience of forgiveness. When you've been deeply offended... And you're going, I'm not going to forgive. They don't deserve it. But if you're a Mary, you don't do it because they deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. This is one way you can show Jesus how much you love him by following his word to be a person of forgiveness. And it may just happen that you break down the barriers and the fragrance of that love for Jesus fills your relationships but oftentimes the obedience is hard. Or the obedience of saying no to your favorite sin, to that one that seduces you so quickly. And when you say no, you say to Jesus, and I love this, Jesus, you are worth more to me than the pleasure of this sin. And I want you to know that. So I say no to the sin as an act of love. I want to anoint you with my obedience, because I love you more than I love this sin. Extravagant, humble, and personal. I want to go back to the Peter thing in John chapter 21, uh, because they go ahead and they go fishing. And that night, guess how many fish they caught? Nothing. They were skunked, right? 
And the text says that in the morning, as the dawn was breaking, there was a figure on the shore. Here they've bailed on Jesus because they weren't getting what they wanted. And the figure on the shore, and, and they, could, they didn't know it was him, but it was Jesus. He shows up. Anybody here today really thankful that Jesus keeps showing up? Maybe this message is Jesus showing up to pivot you from the wrong kind of Christian emphasis and to be one that loves and anoints him with your love. I don't know. And then Peter, once he realizes it's Jesus, he goes overboard and he goes running to shore like Peter. And the text says the other disciples had to row the boat ashore and take the net that was now full of fish because of Jesus. And on the shore, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Isn't that interesting? That this living to love him is what he desires. It's just not a wooden religious function. He actually desires your love because he's into a relationship with you. And so he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks. And Peter says, of course you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, I really won't know. It's not by what you say or what you sing about. It's what you're doing on Monday. He says, I'll know you love me when you care about what I care about. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. The needs and nurture of people, the personal touch from you to someone else who has needs and nurture. And I think a lot of times we get all caught up, like, why did he ask Peter this three times? I don't mind that discussion. That's not the point. Jesus knows you love him when you care about what he cares about. People. He was passionately addicted to the needs and nurture of people. He knew everything else was getting checked at the border. And this caring about what we care, our human relationships are like that, aren't we? You know, I grew up in a non-pet family. Actually, my mom had a canary, but you can't bond to a bird, right? So it doesn't count. So I grew up thinking this. That dogs, dogs, who needs dogs? Dogs are for people who can't make it with humanity, who need props from the animal kingdom. I know how offended you feel right now. So that was my, and then Marty and I fell in love and got married, and Marty grew up in a pet family. She grew up with a black lab that she loved. I mean, Trudy was like, Mm, loved Trudy. You know, let's say her friends kind of dissed her at school. Who was on the front porch wagging her tail, welcoming Marty home? She was a little girl like Trudy. Loves. So soon after we got married, Marty goes, hey, let's get a dog. I'm going, dogs, dogs. Who needs dogs? Marty, come on. Like, dogs are for people who can't make it with humanity, who need prospering. That was not a good moment. <laughs> right. So... I woke up early in our marriage that one of the ways I proved my love to Marty is to care about what she cares about. So we bought a dog. (laughs) Sometimes I fed it, sometimes I walked it. And the more I was around people, the more I loved my dog. That's right, exactly. (laughs) But that's what Jesus is after here. I feel loved by you when you care about others. Love your neighbor as yourself. What are their needs? What are their nurture? What what nurture do they need? You live in a world of people that Jesus wants you to touch 
And it's the way you get married. It's the way you anoint him to reach out and to be extravagant about it and to be humble about it, to be personal about it. That's how we love him in the way that Mary loved him, this model that I so desire to be so much like her. So if you get involved in that and you're extravagantly, humbly, personally living out your love for Jesus Christ, you have to be careful. There's a problem. Quickly, let me tell you that in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he, they're all insiders, just like Judas and Mary. In fact, he goes through a whole list of how really cool they are. All these things, you're doing it well, like, attaboy, 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 until he says, but I have something against you. That's something I never want God to say to me. I have something against you. You have departed from your first love. And the Greek doesn't mean how you love Jesus when you first got saved. It's your priority love. It's the driving love of your life. It's the passionate love of your life. He's basically saying you're doing all these good things, but they've become habits and rote. They become re religious rituals, not passions of a relationship. Be warned. We often, after we get into the groove of these things, end up just kind of doing them. Jesus says, I don't feel loved by you anymore. And so I want to encourage you to never let that love go. Maybe he feels like, let's say that one night Marty goes out with her friends shopping or something after dinner and we got dirty pans in the kitchen. is like a mess from preparing the dinner. And so I think, you know, I could go watch TV or I could read a book or I could clean the kitchen for Marty. And I decide to clean the kitchen for Marty. And I do the pans, and put stuff in the dishwasher, clean the countertops, and it's like, whoa. Spark, it's like, I'm so proud of this. She walks in, she says, oh, Joe, this looks great. Why did you do this? I said, thank you for asking. I'm committed to the institution of marriage. And so, <laughs> that's the Revelation 2 thing. I just do this because Christians do it. No, I say to her, I want you to know something. Words really don't work anymore. So I wanted to do something to prove my love for you. I just want you to know how much I love you. It's not much, Marty, but just one small way that I could say I love you. That's what Jesus wants to hear from your life. That you are driven by a passion to love him back for all he's done for you. So join the adventure of looking for ways to love Jesus with your life. At Cornerstone University, we have a student from China his dad's a pastor there. His name's Enoch. And the other day I was talking with Enoch and I said, hey, Enoch, like, like, like what's your major? He said, international business. I said, what do you want to do with your life? He said, I want to get a graduate degree, then I want to open a business and make enough money to bring all my family. He said, but I have a problem. You know, my dad's a pastor. I didn't have a lot of time with my dad growing up because he was in prison most of the time for the gospel. And when I told my family I wanted to bring them to the States, my dad said this. He said, I would like to do that, Enoch, but I can't do it because my life is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in China. And I thought the fragrance, that, that sacrificial, extravagant, humble, personal gift 
to Jesus. When Marty and I were in college, we got a couple that were friends of ours who were in our senior year of the, our last semester. Dennis and Jan uh, were committed to graduating and going to Brazil as missionaries. And so uh, she had, Jan had her wedding dress and all the invitations, the wedding was planned. Mid-semester, he says to her, you know what, Jan, I really feel like God's not calling me to Brazil. I think I'm supposed to be a pastor in America. Now what will Jan do? She feels God has called her to Brazil. What will she do? She went to Brazil as a single missionary in an extravagant, humble, personal obedience to Jesus Christ. How fragrant, ultimately. How Jesus must have felt so loved. If you're worried about the rest of the story, she met a widower who was a missionary in Brazil who already had five kids. They fell in love, got married, instant family. I just want you to know God doesn't always work like that. But that was a fragrant act of love. You say, well, yeah, but I'm not called to Brazil and my dad's not in prison in China. Fine, just work it out in your world. I have to tell you this to my shame, and you can go shame, shame, shame if you want to. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor, so I grew up in church world. I mean, I've been to church so many times. I have so many church credits. I don't need to go to church another day in my life, actually. But growing up in church, you, you learn all the habits, right, of how to be a good Christian. And, and one thing Marty and I have been committed to our whole lives is giving a part of our income back to the Lord, just kind of like that's what Christians do. Last night, I was writing the check that we were going to bring for the blue bucket. And for the first time in my life, writing a check for the work of God, I stopped. Because I'd been reading about Mary. I stopped and I prayed. And I said, Lord, I'm writing this because I love you. And because I want to anoint you with this gift and to put it in your power for the use of the kingdom. Why does it take me? Why did I never, ever? It was just like, write the check. It's what Christians do. Last night was different. Wonderfully, I'll never write a check to God's work again without it being a missile of love to him. And uh, then he said, Joe, is it, and thanks for being so humble and thanks for being so personal about this, but is it extravagant? Whoa. And I thought, you know what? I'm ripping this check up and I'm writing another one. And I just ramped it up because I want to be someone like you want to be someone who just looks for ways to show Jesus how much you love him. The pinnacle of our Christian experience. Welcome to the adventure. When I was a kid growing up, many of you probably remember this. Uh, we used to sing this song. After all he's done for me. After all he's done for me. How could I do less than give him my best and live for him completely? After all, he's done for me. Embrace it. And God bless you.